1: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. So when I I first heard about Richard's book The Lark Ascending, straight away the title, I I loved it because Lark Ascending is one of my favourite pieces of music And and it's about music and the landscape. Fantastic. One of my greatest, happiest early memories is being in the family car, driving through the British landscape on the way to Cornwall or Norfolk, listening to that piece of music. The two things are connected. And then I, th- you know, I thought, I'm interested in landscape and music. This is going to be the book for me. And then mm. I started reading it. And you know, you've know, you got all this, you've taken on this, this journey that's very much like, each chapter is almost like a journey through a landscape. T- things move from one to the other in a way that it's not sudden, but it all makes sense. And you go from Kinder Chesprass to Gavin Byers, Sinking the Titanic. You've got Brian Eno and Soho's jazz scene, but then you've got what was inspiring the people of Green and Common. You've got Welsh radicals, and then some chapters don't seem to have much music in at all. And the more I loved the book, the more was because I realised uh, that Richard hadn't written a book necessarily about English, uh, British landscape and music at all.
0: Pub- uh, Publishers like subtitles.
1: Yeah. So it was a misleading subtitle by favour. So it was was that always your in? Did it start out more as a book about music that then became a book about politics and society?
0: The facetious answer to that question is a one-word answer, and that is countryfile. I've I've lived in the middle of nowhere for 20 years, and I don't really recognise that projection of rural Britain or the countryside, and I wanted to write a book that try to address our relationship to the landscape in a way that felt more like my own experience, but the experience of my neighbors who are farmers and the experience of all of us, really. And the Lark Ascending itself, as you say, is obviously a piece of music that people really respond to personally. It happens in the landscape, which is you know countryside of the mind. It's a mental space we're taken to over its 20 minutes. But it's also... I think a communal piece of music, when the lark flies over the land in the middle section, the animated section, below it is some activity taking place. That could be a May festival, it could be a country wedding, it could be anything, but there's something happening underneath that's communal. And I wanted to write about our communal experience of the landscape and wherever there is a communal experience of the landscape, there's nearly always music. And as well as that, to have a communal experience of the landscape is actually quite a difficult thing to do. So, the more I wrote about people in the landscape experiencing the landscape, the more I realized I was going to be writing about things like the definition of trespass and ownership of land and the economics of agriculture and of permission. And, you know, we're presented often. I think in things like Countryfile, though that may be the last time I mention it now, um, <laughs> that um, the landscape is somehow timeless and eternal and is a place of sort of fixed certainties. But even in the 20th century, it was a place of great upheaval, and I, I, I wanted to write about it as it was experienced.
1: What was your experience of, of when you moved to, to Wales and sort of left London and engaging with being in a, such a different environment. Did you have an experience of that kind of communal?
0: I mean, I did straight away because we moved there the year of some sort of jubilee. I don't know what, something to do with the Queen, some jubilee in 2001 or something. And we were instantly invited to a, a bonfire being lit on a, a beacon, uh, which someone had paid money for to happen. So it sort of had to happen. There's a community fund or something And I didn't know, my wife and I knew so few people In we don't even really live in a village, but in our community, then we didn't know anyone other than a farmer and his wife. And everyone knew who we were Mm. at this bonfire lighting session. So we were lucky. I mean, my wife was very clever. There was a wonderful local pub. And she said, basically, you're not to speak. The entire first year we live here, you're not to open your mouth. Um, and gradually we were accepted. And so yes, that, we were part of a community quite quickly.
1: <laughs> due to your enigmatic presence.
0: Yeah, due, due, due to not shooting my mouth. Off.
1: Yeah. Why, why did you particularly pick Vaughan Williams as as this sort of the, the kind of narrative? There's a bit of a narrative thread element, but the title and to begin as well.
0: Sure. So. I think it's very interesting that Lark Ascending is so popular. Uh, it's the you know classic FM, it's always the, the, comes out top of their chart. It's the most requested Desert Island disc. It's regularly played at funerals. But popular things can be mysterious. Uh, I think that's something we often forget. And Vaughan Williams was very assiduous in always ascribing a place to his compositions. So, Down Ampney, possibly the one composition of his as heard in "Come Down, O Love Divine," the hymn heard even more at funerals than the Lark Ascending, is named after his village of his birth in Gloucestershire. He collected lots and lots of folk songs throughout his life, and always credited the person who he heard first sing the tune and. Recorded where it was from, but the lark ascending he didn 't give a location to, and that was I mean, it, it, that was fairly rare for him to do that and for something that 's so powerful and obviously so evocative of a landscape, I thought I wanted to explore why he hadn 't given it a precise location and I think it so suits our national temperament because everyone responds to it so emotionally, if you look at YouTube comments or, or just, just the way it kind of hangs in our daily life, this is the one place musically that people feel able to sort of open up emotionally, which is quite a rare thing in our character. So I thought we must have something that produces this reaction in people. The American school children most mornings sing, this land is your land, at the start of their school day. And I wondered if the Lark Ascending is our nearest equivalent to something like this land is your land. It takes us somewhere and gives us a sense of, if not ownership, with fellowship of the land that I think many of us feel is is latent within us. I I write in the book quite a lot about fascism in the 30s and blood and soil, so you have to be very careful about how far one takes that idea. But I think there is a latency in many of us about our connection to the landscape and the Lark ascending seems to articulate it.
1: Can I have done, sort of introduced it a little bit? Do you want to read a sure. passage for us?
0: This is the prologue, so it's not really a spoiler. The landscape is never truly ours. A mile away from my home in mid Wales, there is a notice attached to a fence in the corner of a secluded field. The notice states that the path beneath it leads to a designated access and egress point on the bank of the River Wye, which has been provided for the use of canoeists wishing to navigate the water. Entrance is permitted each October to march, but under strict conditions. The notice then lists the set of rules regarding the various rights granted by the five organisations that have agreed this location as an access point to the river. The Countryside Council for Wales, Environment Agency Wales, the Welsh Assembly Government, the Wyandusk Foundation and the British Outdoor Professionals Association. Three of these organisations whose insignia run along the bottom of the notice no longer exist, so it is uncertain whether the permissions stated on the notice are still upheld. During summer, the area around the notice is overgrown with bracken and ferns that protect its colour from fading, but ensure that the information is barely visible. In this sparsely populated rural area, where farming remains the principal economic activity, and canoeists are seldom seen even outside the fishing season, graffiti is rare. It is therefore a surprise to see that someone has scratched a message in neat letters onto this metal notice that rejects its designations and instructions. The statement they have left is straightforward. No one can own a river. Conventions and laws that have endured for centuries dictate the relationship we have with the countryside, whether on land or in water. Despite these jurisdictions, our sense of union with the landscape feels equally durable. In our lifetime, very few of us will ever own a physical piece of the landscape. Yet it continues to define our national identity, the white cliffs of Dover, England's mountains green, and the meadow, hill, cottage, and shallow water depicted in Constable's The Haywayne. These images, now all but anodyne in their familiarity, are embedded in our national psyche to such a degree they sustain the belief that the landscape is timeless and ours to commune with. Rural Britain remains the panorama onto which we project the idea of our best selves. Throughout his life, Vaughan was limited to the principle that a country's music was made by its people rather than for them. He recognized the ability to understand, enjoy, and immerse oneself in music in everyone. According to the composer, music was the art of the humble but also the art form with the greatest capacity to transform the every day, even if only by celebrating it, such is the function of many folk songs. His friend and musical biographer, Michael Kennedy, later wrote of Vaughan Williams, his nationalism was avowedly conscious, never was itself conscious. There never was a less typical, typical Englishman. Vaughan Williams believed music was a latent force in all people, the only means of artistic expression, which is natural to everybody. In contrast to many of his works, the physical setting of the lark ascending is anonymous. The open land over which the lark launches itself ever upwards remains unspecified. The imagination of the listener who travels to their own mental destination when experiencing the music decides its location, a place known only to them in the countryside of the mind. Vaughan Williams wrote, I believe that every community in every mental state should have its artistic equivalent. In his most popular composition, he created the musical equivalent of the British landscape open to every community. To realize the ideal of a countryside of the mind in the living landscape of the United Kingdom is an almost impossible task. Throughout the 20th century, despite the restriction of access experienced by the majority of people in Britain, Attempts were made to reinvent the countryside. These experiments in rural reconfiguration were made with the same energy and celebration that the lark observed from on high during its flight. And as Vaughan Williams anticipated, wherever there is congregation in the countryside, it achieves its fullest expression in music, the art form that so uniquely renders the mysterious connection we feel with the ground beneath our feet.
1: So when when you were sort of plotting through the book, how did, I mean, I find it fascinating how just the breadth of groups and people and historical musicians, but also social activists and some of of the left and the right. How did you begin to bring all of this together?
0: So the Kinder Trespass of 1932 felt very significant. Uh, Many people here will know the history of the Kinder Trespass. In April 1932, a few hundred young people, employed, unemployed, um, mainly taken from the members of the proletariat, decided to do something we all now think is habitual. They went for a walk up in the hills to have some fresh air during a time of Great Depression and low employment and, you know, life was hard for people. And they're all, the organiser of the trespass, Benny Rothman, was a member of the Young Communist League, and also Jewish. And he was arrested and then prosecuted for causing a fray, having organised the trespass. Trespass then was not a criminal offence, so the sentence he received was considered harsh and perhaps reflected several prejudices on behalf of the prosecutors. And the outcry that the Kinder trespass generated led to things like the formation of the Youth Hostel Association, uh, the Ramblers Association. This was all building up towards the outbreak of the Second World War. And then, in 1949, the National Parks and Countryside Act was passed. Hugh Dalton, the Chancellor of Attlee's government, was a chairman of the Ram- Ramblers Association. So that, you know, I think you can say the creation of national parks is, is on a par with the changes brought about by the Attlee government that includes the formation of the NHS and social housing. It opened up the countryside to the, the population. Then 60 years later, within a month, May 1992, was the Castle Morton Rave and 40,000 people gathered on a common inn. Worcestershire and the Malvern Hills in Elgar country. And such was the outcry at what happened there. That within two years, two years, the criminal justice bill was passed. That became a cause célèbre due to the ridiculous language, rep- repetitive beats phrase, but more significant was the introduction of a law of aggravated trespass, which essentially criminalized trespass for the first time in the 20th century. So you had these two momentous events that had great legal significance to do with how we could inhabit the countryside in the 20th century. And I wanted to examine the events leading up to Kinderscout and then this 60-year gap in the middle where the landscape could be redefined by people who wanted to do so. And increasingly that became a harder and harder thing to do as. During the course of the century, land once again regained value, uh, particularly after we joined the EC in 1974 and subsidies began to come in to farming at a fairly substantial rate. So I write a lot about the back to land movement that John Seymour engendered self-sufficiency in the late fifties, early sixties. And then you reach a point in the 1980s with new age travellers where They'd like to go back to the land, but there's no land to go back to, so they go back to laybys and corners of municipal ground. Um, so I wanted to sort of trace that idea of trying to find ways to inhabit the landscape that hadn't been tried before.
1: It's interesting the way class weaves its way through, because you've you, things historic like the Essex plotlanders, who were working class people from, from London who were able to go out to. <coughs> rural Essex and yeah. set up a railway carriage and sort of live and that place like Basildon were built on the, 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 those sorts of um, plot plotlander towns. Yeah. But then like you're talking about the value of land has meant that that's, that's no longer possible. <laughs> but I wanted to think about the Seymour yeah. a little bit. There was, um, Richard did a sort of, I guess it was a preliminary to, to, to the book really, at yes. the social, and showed this beautiful documentary about John Seymour in Wales and it was interesting watching the film because people sort of seemed to find it funny and I, I, I Didn't quite understand where they were getting the humor from I thought it was a very touching and interesting film about a way of life that was just being comp- about to go You know when you see you very rarely get those those uh, cultural artifacts of that just really nails something just as it's about to disappear forever Could you talk a bit about him and sure uh, so uh, what his significance? Yes, the book.
0: well John Seam was a fascinating character he was um born into wealth but rejected his background quite quickly and by his early 20s he traveled extensively around africa At uh, the outbreak of the second world war he volunteered he was in africa somewhere and he volunteered for the king's africa rifles during the first world war the government set up things called war agricultural commissions which was basically a form of using agricultural land as a national utility or at least making sure that it was put to best possible use and after the first world war they were disbanded and there was no support for agriculture which is why you ended up with the rack and ruin era of the 30s and ribbon development and metro land and the growth of suburbia and on the coast bungalows you know Agatha Christie bungalows popping up in the 1930s and um the War Agricultural Commissions were started again in the Second World War, and once the war had completed, Seymour came back and was a member of the Suffolk Agricultural Commission. And he realized that there was lots of leftover nitrogen from the war effort and that agriculture was going to be become increasingly industrialized. And he understood farming very well and wanted nothing to do with it. So in 1956, he took his family off to a small holding in Suffolk called The Broom and wrote a book called The Fat of the Land that was then published in 1961, which is this phenomenally seductive account of taking a ruin, doing it up, growing your own vegetables, having a horse and cart, and writing books for Faber and Faber.
1: Uh,
0: (laughs) It was very, very popular over time. And he became identified. I mean, it's quite a terse book in many ways. In many ways, he's quite pragmatic and, you know, scathing of someone like Walden and saying, I'm not doing this out of ideology. I'm doing this because I want to live this way. And anyway, Wald, um, Thoreau lived on beans. But uh, he grew tired of Suffolk because he saw what was happening in East Anglia was the dismantling of the hedgerows and the dynamiting of of the fields and the growth, the growth of prairie farming and the increased use of fertilizer and you know agriculture starting to become agribusiness. So he, just thought, well, he thought, well, where can I go where I can actually live this kind of pre-lapsarian idea of agriculture? I can live off the land and nothing else. And he ended up in West Wales in the Preseli Hills at the foot of Carningley, a small mountain. And he, because he had a great affinity with farming, the community, who were practically all Welsh speaking, took him to heart and he'd really discovered one of the last few remaining places in britain along with the outer hebrides parts of cornwall other parts of the north of northern scotland where you could kind of still live that very hard scrabble life the returns from the farming were great it's just very basic hill farming but the life is enriched by the experience of being part of that community it was for him then in 1977, he published the Book of Self-Sufficiency, The Complete Guide to Self-Sufficiency, which begat The Good Life, the television programme, and it was a book that sold nearly two million copies. It was a how-to book of how to be Tom and Barbara, basically. By then, the people who'd read The Fat of the Land had, had come on pilgrimages to West Wales to kind of be at his door and hear his wisdom. And West Wales then was a place where you have know, a lot of ruins, and if you got hold of an acre with a falling down barn, you could kind of live experimentally there. And I think, I always think the presence of Steiner or Montessori schools in rural areas are proof of an infestation of hippies. <laughs> a proper one, you know, one that's survived. And that was certainly the case there. And He got very annoyed with people trying to grow marijuana on his farm, saying it's far too dark there, it'll never work, and that kind of thing. But he was a guru for for many, and only partly was he unwilling to be a guru, but he was the person in the middle of the century who saw a way of living in rural Britain um, that I think no one else had certainly been able to kind of um, project on such a scale.
1: It's interesting that with the... the he sort of rewrote, you know, two, two million copies of this book was sold. Mm. And then, you know, there's, people were inspired to come down. And then there's, there's sort of, there's one bit where there's, there's some hippies sort of saying, the, the, these Welsh people here, they're not properly connected to yes, the land. They, they've
0: lost all connection of where they come from. Yes. As, he, I mean, I'm Welsh and I don't have a Welsh accent, but hearing people with really not a Welsh accent saying on camera, these local people have lost all connection with <laughs> the spirit guide that should be within them. And... I can assure everyone that spirit guide is still alive and well in certain pubs in West Wales today.
1: Because there's an incredible bit in the film where one of the farmers or agricultural laborers talks about the lights going down the lane and it's the souls of the dead. It's just absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Said with total conviction.
0: Yes, total belief. I mean, it's a mysterious... I I wanted to avoid sort of folk horror in this book because I think it's, you know, if you don't live in rural landscape and you see a cow skull, you might think it's really significant, but if you live in when you realize you see one every other day, and its significance is it's a cow skull. Mm. You know. But that is the one moment where I talk about the body candle, the light of the dead passing through the mountains. And these, aren't, these, are, these are people who are being accused by the incomers of having lost their spiritual connection. So yeah. Mm.
1: Because there are some, there's some... They're now all Airbnb b landlords. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are some fairly sort of esoteric groups uh, crop up in the book. It's one of my favourite sort of aspects of it. Yeah. Is the, what do they call somebody's gang? Ferguson's gang. Ferguson's gang. gang yes. Who, and I, can't, I, well, I quite like... They're you, not you, you're, music groups. You yeah, exactly. not musical yeah. groups, but sort of or, c- communal groups. But, yeah. And one of the things I like about the books is you kind of give some of these groups enough rope to sort of <laughs> deal with themselves in, in a way.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's commendable and really interesting that people felt that the land could be reinvented as they saw it. So Ferguson's gang were a set, I think is the right word, of some fairly well-to-do women in the thirties who wanted to kind of do, it was before the National Trust Act had been passed. The National Trust Act was the act that allowed estates to bequeath their houses and their chattels to the National Trust. And it was a way of avoiding death duties. And at that point that meant the National Trust basically became the (coughs) National Trust and the curator and uh, owner of of so much uh, historic property and sites. But as that was starting to happen, Ferguson's gang were a group of women who sort of took it into their own to rescue and restore properties phenomenal achievements of what they did, and they sent ransom notes and had very interesting pseudonyms, blind beggar, funny biddy, that kind of thing, and they would deliver their donations to the National Trust in sovereigns sown in pig's heads and that kind of thing. But at the same time, there were people in Dorset who were very interested in Rudolf Steiner's idea of... Um, Blood and soil and biodynamic farming, which sees a cow's skull cracked and then buried underground. Sorry, buried underground, then uh, brought to earth, then cracked and then sprinkled on the earth and watered over. And these were people with very much fascist sympathies. Rudolf Hess was a fan of Steiner's principles and the blood and soil movement, which came from the Bünder youth movement in 1930s Germany then fed into Hitler youth and I'm sure many people here know of Henry Williamson the author of Tark of the Otter's relationship with those ideals and um, Joran Jenks was Oswald Mosley's British group of Union fascists uh, agricultural spokesperson and he would end up founding the Soil Association so in the 30s I mean when, yeah, I think it's Good to remember in the 30s, lots of people were interested in Nazi Germany. Philip Larkin's father took him to Germany in the 30s to to look at what was going on there. But there were groups who were very serious about the Nazi connection to blood and soil and saw Morris dancing and folk music as a way of bringing people closer to to farming. Um, Mm. I write about Rolf Gardner in particular. And then
1: you, you have a reprinted in the book, the kind of World War II propaganda picture, which says, you know, your Britain, fight for it um, with a sort of idealised rural scene. And it's interesting because you say that the post, that image was considered overbearing at the time, but now kind of keep calm and carry on modern Britain. You see these sort of sentimentalised views of landscape reproduced everywhere. Do you, do you think there's a sort of dubiousness to that, a conservatism to that?
0: Well, I mean, the Frank Newbell poster, I think's probably familiar to lots of people. It's a, a shepherd walking through the Downs and it says, you're, you're Britain, fight for it now. And the poster it replaced was the Abraham Grames picture of a boy with rickets in front of a hospital, which might be built if we won the war um, and founded an NHS. And that poster was one Churchill bound because he said it doesn't present Britain in a good light. One could argue presented it in a very good light, and it was replaced by this idealized view of a shepherd. And of course, that life of the shepherd walking through the Downs uh, with two sheepdogs in contentment was not the life of the average Tommy by any means, and it was considered overbearing, and subsequently, posters reverted to things like savings bonds, digging for victory. And there was that use of sort of heavy nostalgia and emotional pull was, was definitely avoided, uh, but it has come back and it, as did the Keep Calm and Carry On poster. I suppose I wanted to write about Vaughan Williams in that context as well, because occasionally he gets, I think, allayed with that view of the landscape. And, you know, he, he attended a fancy dress party in drag as the suffragette Mary Neal. Uh, I think in many ways he was far more radical than people give him credit mm. for.
1: That was one thing you said when we talked on the phone, you wanted to sort of reclaim him from, from that, but you didn't think he'd have liked Castle Morton very much.
0: I think he would have approved of the Greenham Common Women, Women's Peace Camp. I think he might have drawn the line at Castle Morton, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I think one of the most powerful aspects to the book is the um, part of it that, that deals with the Greenham, common um, peace camp. Again, not necessarily a chapter you'd expect to find in a book about British landscape music. Why why did you particularly want to bring them in?
0: Well, the first thing to say about the women's peace camp was within six months, it was decided that men, it would be a women-only peace camp. So I realized I was writing about it with limited authority, and I wanted to recognize that in writing about it. But um, the success of the peace camp, and I do think in many ways the peace camp won, I mean, the peace camp lasted longer than the cruise missiles did, and I think that counts as a victory. But it only could be achieved and sustained because it was on common land. And we have a strange relationship with common land in this country. I think... Some people think it's to do with the fact that there's a queen and we're commoners and we have a right to walk on this public space, but the majority of common land is privately owned. And common land is land that people who are or were, or who families are or were commoners, still have rights to. And that could be grazing rights, it could be right to gather fuel. Greenham Common itself was appropriated for the war effort in the second world war and then the rights of common were given back to the commoners and then it was appropriated again in the cold war but the common the common rights still applied it became the property of the u.s air force in 1980 without any (laughs) any recourse to parliament and throughout the occupation of the peace camp Lots of bylaws were attempted to be passed to stop this occupation from happening, but it couldn't be stopped because of the rights of common. At one point, Michael Heseltine, who I realize is currently quite a popular figure because of his views on Boris Johnson and Brexit, but as defense secretary in 1984, he tried to pass a bylaw that said any intruder on US Air Force Base Greenham Common could be summarily executed. And the law lords, as usual, said, I think that's going a bit too far. <laughs> and I go into great, I interviewed many people who were there and I go into great detail about the hardships they endured. I think one of the most significant things I discovered was something called Embrace the Base when 40,000 women came and all joined hands around the entire perimeter fence and placed objects of their children, toys, items of clothing in the fence. And if you look at the photographs of the people who are participating, many of them are wearing Macintoshes and have handbags or, I, I don't want to say nice hair, but they, you know, <laughs> these aren't people who look like yoghurt weavers. These look these people look more like Margaret Thatcher than hippies. Mm. And they were all participating in this. It was a great group experiment. And music was an incredible force at Greenham Common Peace Camp. Uh, they wrote amazing songs. Under the moonlight we danced together. I am a communist spy. There's a <laughs> hole in your fence, dear airfield, dear airfield. <laughs> and as I wrote about it, I thought, well, As far as I'm concerned, these songs that the women who endured incredible hardship sang together as a means of sustaining their spirits and as a way of fighting back. This says more to me about our relationship with the British landscape in the 1980s than Elgar. Mm. And so to me, the, the music of the British landscape then included the songs of the Greenham women.
1: Because mm. there is a there's a lack of sentimentality to the, the the music that's in the book. It's often very dynamic music or experimental music, or you know, people like Penguin Cafe Orchestra. Mm. I thought it was fascinating. You bring you brought them in because I wouldn't have necessarily fitted them in, but you managed to do that. Mm. It was there a sense that you feel sort of some a bit frustrated about uh, with some music that's kind of like or art that's landscape art or nature art and nature music. Were you trying to show a more radical? Uh, alternative,
0: possibly. I, if I was, I think it's because I think the landscape is an inherently radical place, and mm. our relationship to it is often radical. You know, the Chartists wanted three acres and a cow. You know, that was one of their demands. So, and Cromwell recruited many of his new model army from people who'd been enclosed, and people who had been commoners and had had the ability to feed themselves and grow fuel and therefore have time to think and have ideas about changing society so i think the landscape is radical inherently and i think it's also i mean you know there was this point in all the brexit madness last year when they decamped to check us and we'd all got i hope not everyone but many of us had got used to checking twitter to see what was happening that 10 minutes you know and it all slowly Time stood still when they are at Chequers and all the politicians had had their phone taken from them. And the BBC was sort of reduced to just showing a perfect field of wheat and a 17th century British manor house in Buckinghamshire. <laughs> and you realize that is where the power lies, you mm. know, in this country, never mind Westminster. And the f- foreign secretary has a similar house in Kent. And really that is the power structure of our landscape. and. We've always been trying to find ways around this. And yes, to answer your question, why did I write about Penguin Cafe? I don't really know. Um, I like Penguin Cafe Orchestra. And I think during the eighties, when lots of people were moving to very technical studio based music and drum machines and production, they were using cat gut guitars and they didn't even really have a drum kit. And it's acoustic music when very few people were making it. And it's sort of folk music for a world that doesn't exist. And it's also, I wanted to understand why they were so popular because they were on Wogan, but there was also a Southbank show made about them. And I don't know how many people that happened to, and they never had a hit, but they were very, very popular and they happened through sort of word of mouth. And when I spoke to Arthur Jeffers, Simon Jeffers' son, I said, when you play the music now, and people come up to you afterwards and say what the music means to them. What do they say? And he says, well, they say, it's the only music we could all have on in the car that me and my parents both liked. And I said, and what was this car journey? He said, oh, you know, driving to Cornwall on holiday. Said, exactly, yes. Ooh. So that's, he proved my point. Basically.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Castle and Common rave, you were there.
0: To the Uh, best of my knowledge and belief. uh,
1: As an experience, what was that like?
0: I really remember very little of it. I went went with a friend from Bristol. We were there for less than 12 hours. It was very, very smelly. Mm. There were no facilities. There were no portaloos, never mind backstage, smart portaloos. The New Age Travellers, obviously, were well equipped to attend to their needs and took spades with them everywhere and, you know, such like, but the kind of weekend ravers were in no way prepared. So it was very stinky. I think it's interesting that all the sound systems were there, but there was no stage. There was no apex or centre of attention. There, and the people who played the music were standing more or less on the ground. So there was no projection of hierarchy or celebrity or any. Want, any no one had wanted any control over any of it. That's what I really remember. It was just we are here, we're doing this. And you know, I went to very, 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 very few raves. Um, at Glastonbury in 1990, in the Traveler's Field, that was probably my first experience of strange and frightening, and wonderful environment mm. of, of illegal things happening involving this racket. But what was so obvious was there was a helicopter going overhead all the time. And in the research of the book, I looked, it was when ITN News, you know, uh, regional news was still a stronghold of broadcasting. And these local TV stations like Television Southwest were saying, there's a pop concert going on. And and the idea that Castle Morton could be understood as a pop concert or an event in those terms now seems rather charming. I try to avoid conspiracy theories, but there were members of the Traveller community who thought all the consabrily had decided if we put everyone in this big open plane and the cameras point at them, we'll finally see that this thing is unmanageable and a law will get passed. Mm.
1: But then if, if you think that that sort of free party movement was a time of communal radicalism, that then got quickly... Co-opted by the likes of Guido Forts, wasn't he? The dreadful sure. right-wing blogger was uh, organised raves. And they were flying in helicopters to take out bin bags full of money. It was yeah. kind of. Do you, see, do you see? How do you see now? Um, we can have this sort of communal experience of the land and, and, and a sense of our own ownership
0: of it again. Well, we're lucky. We, the book ends in two thousand with the foot and mouth crisis. I wanted to end on a high and. Um, <laughs> A few months later, the right to Rome was passed. So I think we have, we have. I mean, these rights are incredibly hard, hardly fought, fought for. You know, with great effort. But you know, festivals are the nearest we have, but they cost two hundred pounds. Uh-huh. You know, to get into, and they're often very enjoyable environments, and people are often in good moods in them for whatever reason. And it's a difficult thing to separate from the commercial interests. And the thing about raving and parties, and even the free parties that used to be allowed to happen in cities, was there was a sense of an intervention happening in the everyday on behalf of just normal people. And that is increasingly hard to f- experience that feeling. Now I write about raves that happened in, in a suburb of Edinburgh that were really popular in a disused quarry and you can see footage of people just raving in Edinburgh, basically, at 5am in the drizzle. It just seems remarkable that that could happen now. So yeah, you know, I think we've moved on significantly from anything like that really happening ever again.
1: Mm. Or we, just, we were talking earlier that we, what, we're just too old to hear about that. I'm certainly though. too old. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'd like to think it'll come back, and I imagine there will be people who say enough's enough and, and you know, the police force have been cut so much now and there must surely be a way of, you know... Yeah, getting away. <laughs>
1: <laughs> One of the other things, I, I do at the start of the book, you talk about walking around, listening to music, which yeah. I really love because there's a the whole... The, a lot of the sort of, like, sentimental nature orthodoxy says you're not allowed to take your phones into landscape, you're not allowed to listen to music, you have to be immersed and demodernise yourself, which I, I find quite... Annoying that view, yeah. to be honest. I think you taking modernity into nature is often quite rewarding. And I was I really loved how you wrote well, it, about listening to music within the landscape. That's what
0: Wordsworth and Coleridge did, didn't they? They took modernity into yeah. nature. Yeah, I mean you'll get wet if you don't embrace modernity and buy a decent waterproof jacket yeah. in, <laughs> in the landscape. So no, I know what you mean. There is a sense of the kind of enraptured male with a Working knowledge of the vocabulary of various species. And I think people get intimidated by this idea that nature is a slightly Gnostic place where you have to observe certain traits that aren't shared with everyone. And I write a little about how land ownership breeds this sense of not entitlement, but sort of a sense that there's secret knowledge that not everyone is allowed to share in. I mean, I sometimes find listening to headphones going for a walk is too overwhelming, and you're asking too much of yourself to kind of be immersed in music and in this beautiful view. And it's a bit of a shorthand of, you know, feeling transcendence mm. is really where the Lark Ascending comes in, because I think it does that job of going on a walk for you, really, mm-hmm. and it gives you that experience. But the book ends walking. Within sight of Kinder Scout in the Peak District, with our mutual friend Rob Saint John, who's a sound artist, and you know we were, we were on a we walked up Pendle, and there wasn't one mention of the Demdike Stair or the Pendle Witches, but there were people eating pies, and there were people, you know, leaning on trig points, and there were people picking magic mushrooms, mm. and. Uh, I think Pendle is the most multiracial peak in Britain. I think there are certain times in August where it's one of the most multiracial spaces in Britain. So, I mean, that's, that's our landscape and it's a working environment in that. It's an environment that allows it to be in it in whatever way we want to be there.
1: Hmm, I think that's a nice note to finish this part of the evening on. It's questions from anybody, questions? rather than statements, would be ideal. Um, not that you any of you people statement types, but um, any questions at all would be great. Your book is um, a series of radical groups and their relationship to the land and nature. Where do you, What do you think about the Extinction Rebellion? Because that's a global uh, movement as opposed to a national one. I wonder what your thoughts are on that.
0: Sure, so in writing about... Greenham Common, one of the things I realised was the methods they'd used at the peace camp were very, very similar to the Occupy movement, of just literally Occupy, and passivity, and to use mass as a way of communicating something. And I think Extinction Rebellion... I mean, I like The Clash. I don't know many people who like The Clash, but when they turned up in Trafalgar Square and played London Calling and we're going, yeah, London, yeah, calling, yeah, Extinction Rebellion, yeah. I thought, oh, this seems very familiar to me. This seems like the poll tax riots and, you know, here we go again. But I think that was just me reaching a conclusion far too soon. I think the fact that it's so embraced by children is, is remarkable. And I can't think of anything that's been so taken on by young it's been taken away from adults in a way that's incredibly exciting town near where i live hay on wide the school children made the mayor declare a climate emergency in hay and that allowed them to him the mayor declaring a climate emergency allowed them to have electric charging points in the town and they couldn't have done that without it and that's coming from children so i mean I think the most exciting thing about it is it's led by the people who are going to have to put up with all the crap that we leave them with.
1: Why do you think Greenham sort of was so long-lasting and, as you say, successful in a way that Occupy kind of fizzled somewhat very quickly?
0: Well, I think Greenham had one focus. Hmm. And it was a very direct local focus. And it was on sitting on top of the point where it was trying to put all its energy into rather than bring down capitalism which is a
1: bit harder I think so (laughs) (laughs) I think somebody could have written this book and made it very Mm anglo-centric and I really love the amount of of Wales in there yeah and and the way you bring Wales together with England in in a really beautiful way and uh, you know obviously you you, that's your that's 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 who you are and you live there but were, were there other reasons for wanting to do that as well
0: yes I think environmentalism in this country was was very much almost birthed in West Wales by John Seymour, Satish Kumar, the editor of Resurgence, Schumacher, who wrote Small is Beautiful, the key text on sort of environmental economics taught at Aberystwyth University and some of the people he taught in the 60s were very active in Plaid Cymru subsequently. Mm. And Wales was the first country to write sustainability into its national charter. So I don't think we're very good in Wales at kind of making that, we're not very good at making a case of anything apart from rugby and binge drinking. But the, um, yeah, we have a great track record of of environmentalism in Wales. And I wanted to to write about, uh, just just to draw attention to that. I also write about Scotland as well, but I I did want to kind of, get away from the idea that the I mean I don't want you know the green and pleasant land feels very very anglicized and I thought by going into Scotland and Wales as a way of kind of getting away from that.
2: Do you feel like you're custodians of the land here because when we have an event Mm -hmm. um, like a public event like this we in the last 20 years have started saying we acknowledge um our aboriginal forebears yes and we um, uh, will tell a bit about the place mm. and we will say we are um, we're just here temporarily so do you have that mindset or does the class system mean that you um, are deprived of that
0: well one of my favorite moments of listening to the radio coverage of the ashes in australia is when an elder does the welcome and does exactly what he says. And they have such a wonderful speaking voice. They're so relaxed and they're in no hurry and they take their time. And I think it really evokes that spirit you're talking about. I think, you know, land ownership in this country is, there've been several books that have been published this year that get right into it, but you know, it's 0.1% or something own the land. And there's a great power in land ownership. There's great value in land ownership. But someone like Michael Evis, uh, the, the organiser and host of Glastonbury, is a landowner. And we've always had fairly eccentric people like the owner of Longleat, which is near Glastonbury. And I write about um, the Battle of the Beanfield at some length, which was a fairly horrific moment in our history when some New Age travellers had their lives destroyed and they were championed by an aristocratic landowner so I don't think we kind of talk about the land but we're quite lucky that we often have landowners who are prepared to go against the natural grain of of land ownership I think that's the nearest we have to that Uh, but but we do have the National Trust and the Forestry Commission who own so much of rural Britain and I think they try and uh, I mean there's this very funny thing of posters for stonehenge on the motorways and saying your stonehenge so that's someone trying to give us your stonehenge but you're not allowed to go there to celebrate the solstice which is probably what it was built for
1: so. <laughs> <laughs> but is the sense of the city and the rural never far away in the land ownership like round here is owned a lot so much of bloomsbury is owned by it's the duke of devonshire i think yeah. who might even be the landlord of this building so you know they have this enormous power even within the cities, these old families. Mm. And then the Crown own, owns the seabed around.
0: 12 miles r- outside, outside the coast. Yeah.
1: So it's. it's yeah. th- that tiny minority of people might be sat in their country house, but they're in charge of where we are now.
2: Definitely. Yeah. I, I just want to ask you a question about the structuring of the book. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, some, sometimes it feels like the music is absolutely integral mm. to the, the, the particular thing you're talking yes. about, the chapter. Sometimes. It's a little bit tenuous, you know. You just without happen, that
0: question, you
2: happen to be walking in that part of the landscape, and listening to a particular tune. Yeah. Um, but it, it it almost feels like it's, it could have been ten books, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and I wondered how you selected, and it also feels like sometimes there are things that you haven't put in that, mm. you know, like I don't know, I'm not a fan, but Salisbury Hill, Peter Gabriel, yes. you know. There, there are there are things that jump out. Yes, that's why I and wrote about Kate Bush. You haven't chosen to put them in. Yeah. But, so I just wondered how you, how you came to the particular selection of sure. music. Is it purely subjective, or is there N- um, more I w- of a connecting logic?
0: Um, I'm not sure there is a connecting logic. I wanted to write about some music that was popular. So the hands of I want to write about Kate Bush, not, not Peter Gabriel, because I think she's more interesting than Peter Gabriel, and I think. Uh, the Hands of Love's her most successful record. So like with Vaughan Williams, there's something that's very, very popular, but also very, very mysterious. And I wanted to write about Germ- um, the influence of German fascism on folk music because we're so used to the Cecil Sharp English folk dance song society interpretation of folk music, I thought interesting that some people with very differing political views could take the same songs and and use them as anthems themselves. And I didn't want to write about folk music that we all know about, and I didn't want to write about Bert Jansch, basically. So I also wanted to kind of, in a way, repatriate the sounds of the landscape that people heard at raves and heard in the 60s in strange environments. I wanted to put them back in the landscape. And I, I wanted to write about music that had inhabited the countryside that possibly wasn't about it or for it.
1: Is that the term you use repatriation, not patriotism?
0: Yeah. So I think Vaughan Williams wanted to basically give us a sense of ownership of the landscape and say, this is everyone's, although obviously it isn't. But I want everyone to feel that it's theirs. And that's very different to feeling patriotic. That's just feeling you have some connection at some deeper level. And that's what I hope people feel reading the book.
1: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.